is where we are in our pilgrimage or journey through Mark's gospel. We find ourselves today in verse or verses 12 through 21. Mark's gospel, chapter 14, verses 12 through 21. The Bible says, beginning in verse 12 of chapter 14 of Mark's gospel, on the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples, that is, the disciples of Jesus, said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. The disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he came with the twelve, and they were reclining at the table and eating. As they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be grieved and to say to him one by one, Surely not I. And he said to them, it is, the one, it is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. You know, there's multi-layers of mystery that just surrounds the salvation experience. I don't know if we'll ever get to the bottom of it. You know, sometimes we just have to suffice to say, I don't know what happened to me. All I know is I once was blind, but now I see. I once was spiritually dead, but now I'm alive. I once was an enemy of God, but now I have been reconciled to Him by the blood of Jesus Christ. Don't understand a whole lot of it. Can't really give you a play-by-play of how it takes place. There's mystery involved. And that mystery is often communicated to me. I'll I'll hear folks say sometime, Pastor Richie, how is it that people can sit under the strong influence of the gospel of Jesus Christ and never be moved by it, never be convicted, and seemingly never be converted by the strong message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I say, I don't know. It's just a mystery how that can happen. But you know, I've seen it work out even more complicated than that. I have seen where brothers, too close to the same age, who were born of the same parents, raised in the same household, one of them turned out to be a God-lover and the other turn out to be a God-hater. And, you know, the psychologists want to explain it away in several fashions, but I reject all of those. Some folks say, well, it's due to society and due to their social networks. But no, these two boys had the same social network. They were raised by the same mom and dad in the same household. Others want to say, well, it's it's environment. No, They had the same luxuries, they had the same privileges growing up. It's not environment. Others will say, well, it's got to be education. But no, it's not education because both of the boys tracked with one another right from elementary school all the way through graduating college. It's not. Others still say, well, it has to be economic. But that's not the case either because again, they shared the same privileges, had the same financial status all their lives. Why is it that one of them will grow up to be a God lover and the other one grow up to be a wicked lost person who has nothing to do with God and has no intentions of having anything to do with God? You see, those are two people who are in the same place but on extremely different paths as they go through life. 
And I think this story here kind of illustrates that exact point. So I want to speak to you on that subject today. Two people in the same place, but on different paths. And you see, I think this is part of Mark's literary style because oftentimes Mark will take two events or he will take two people. He will juxtapose them in order to show the disparity between them. Now let me run that by you one more time. Sometimes Mark will take two events or two people and he will put them side by side in the flow of the narrative of his gospel in order for us to be able to contrast and see just how different these two people are. And there's no place in Scripture where that disparity or where that difference is more glaring than right here in this passage where Mark does just that. He takes two people who are in the same place but are on far different paths and he sets them there for us to be able to contrast and even more than that, maybe for us to be able to identify what path we are on and to try to see which one of these folk are we emulating more closely in our walk on the path that we have before us. Of course, these two people that were in the same place but on different paths are the Lord Jesus Christ and Judas. Because if you look and see how this breaks out uh, exegetically, this passage breaks down very nicely in two paragraphs. The first paragraph is 12 through 16, and that's talking about the, the preparation of the Passover and showing what Jesus is asking of His disciples there. And then in verses 17 through 21, the last paragraph in this passage, we have it all focusing on the prediction of His betrayal. So in one passage we have the Lord Jesus Christ, in the other we're focusing on the, the one who is going to betray Him, and that is Judas. Now again, no greater contrast in all the Scripture, because here side by side we have one who should have never been betrayed. But then on the other hand, we have one whom Jesus Himself said probably should have never been born. That's a pretty wide disparity. In this same passage, we have one who is completely selfless, has his face set toward the cross for your salvation and mine. And on the other hand, we have one who is completely selfish, who is going to sell Jesus for whatever few coins he can get out of him. On one hand, we have one who, because of the path that he was on, ascended to the very throne of God, received a name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yet on the other hand, we had one who descended into the very depths of hell to a special place reserved just for Him. Two people in the same place but on different paths. I'll never forget when I started seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, the dean stood up and he was a rough, gruff old dude and he told us then, he said, look to your left and look to your right because in three years, two of you won't be here. And you know, everybody was kind of doing like the disciples. Is it me? Am I going to flunk out? But you know what? He was exactly right. Seminary has a way of washing out those who do not know for certain that this is the path that God has called them. And you know, it could be true right here in a local church in the Bible Belt of the United States of America. It's not far-fetched for us to look to our left and look to our right and think, a couple of these dudes ain't going to make it to heaven. <laughs> because so much culture has crept in. How can people be in the same place under the same influences, with the same privileges, hearing the same message, some go to hell and others go to heaven. Well, let's check out this divine mystery as we walk through this passage and look at these 
two personalities that are greatly contrasted by Mark here in this passage of Scripture in chapter number 14. Let's look number one first at the one who should have never been betrayed, and that is Jesus Christ. And here's what we can say about Jesus. He was the one who was in complete control of the situation. Have you noticed that? Check out verses 12 through 16 and you see that Jesus is in complete control. Who is it that's calling the shots? And it's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, that is one path. He was on the path that gave Him complete control of every situation in life. For example, what is it that Jesus is seen doing here? Well, I think we can say that in this passage we see Him embracing His God-given destiny. Check out what this passage does. It's very meticulous the way it's worded. and It wants us to see that this was something that just had to be. There was no way around this. And it has to do with the Passover. You understand that it was the greatest act of deliverance in the history of the nation of Israel. It's when they were in Egyptian slavery and the Lord was getting ready to deliver them and this is what He did. He said, you find a lamb and you kill it and you place the blood of that lamb on your doorpost and every house over whom the death angel passes and sees that there is the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, he will pass over that house. So it was a great act of deliverance. But notice now the pains that Mark takes here to show us that that was just symbolism. Jesus is the substance. You see, the Passover lamb was the greatest act of deliverance until the Son of God, the Lamb of God came and delivered you and I in His exodus. So this had to take place. Here He is and He is identifying and being identified as the Paschal Lamb, one who had to be slain and one who had to be sacrificed at this particular festival on this particular day. Now get this. Do you remember the last passage we studied? Those old scribes and Pharisees, those yellow belly cowards were saying, we're going to get Him, but we're going to wait till after the feast because if we get Him during the feast, He's so popular there will be an uproar among the people. So let's just put this off till after the feast. But friends, I want to tell you, this day was marked out on God's divine calendar. Jesus is in control. He's calling the shot. Not some yellow-bellied, coward Pharisee. And here He is in perfect control of His situation. He embraced His God-given destiny. Now can I just stop and say, man, what a path. What a path to embrace the destiny that God has for you. And can I say to you, hey, hey, watch me here. God has a plan for your life. He has a path for you to walk. But you know what I find myself doing more times than not? Wishing that my path wasn't my path, but really wishing I was on that guy's path over there because it looks like a better path. And you see, in doing so, I'm really saying to God, God, I reject your sovereignty, your loving care, and your all-knowing plan and wisdom for my life because really what I want is that guy's path over there. How much time do we spend looking at the green pasture inside somebody else's fence? And here Jesus is. He's in, com in perfect control of his situation and one of the reasons is because he's perfectly content with the God-given destiny that's been put before Him. So man, that begs a lot of questions, does it not? Do you know what God's plan is for your life? And I'm not talking about in general. I'm talking about what is the path that God has marked out for you to walk in life in order to bring glory and honor unto Him? Well, it's something worth exploring. We've got to run on. Notice, Jesus was in complete control of His situation one of the reasons because he embraced his God-given destiny. Man, we'll, we'll come unglued at the scene. We'll fall apart. We'll come unraveled. First time the wolf knocks on the door, if we're not 100% certain that I am today living in the center of God's will, I'm on the path that he has marked out for me since from the beginning of time I am where I was born to be. Do you know that you're there? 
Friends, I want to tell you, this life that we're in, it demands that we know some of those things. I'll never forget when Heather and I were about to leave and go to the mission field for an extended period of time, didn't know when we were coming back, and I was taking my wife and my youngest son with me to a complete foreign culture where I was going to be completely out of control. I was just learning language. I was just learning how to navigate culture. It's a crime-ridden, infested place. I had to know that I know that, God, this is the path that you had for me. You know why? Watch me. I said, God, I can't get down there. And God forbid something happened and my son get killed in a motorcycle accident and me live the rest of my life not knowing that I was there because you had me there. And I wasn't just there because I wanted to be myself. See, there's something to this about knowing that you know that you're on the path God has marked out for you. None of this willy-nilly, helter-skelter, flying by the seat of your pants, but knowing that you are where you are because this is God's destiny for me. Well, notice the next thing we see here about Jesus being in control of His situation. Number one, He was in control. There was no panic. There was no paranoia. He knew where He was headed, folks. And He willingly embraced it. Can I say to you that God's path doesn't always end in a bed of roses, but you'd still rather be on it than you had on one that you've chosen for yourself? We're going to see that here in a little while when we come to Judas's part of this passage. So number one, he embraced his God-given destiny as the Paschal Lamb. And the plan was set in motion. And he was walking according to script. But number two, notice how he was aware of every detail here. Man, this amazes me. Check out this. I want you to see this in Scripture. He sends two of his disciples. I don't know who it, it may have been Peter, might have been one of them. The reason I say that is because Mark is writing from the recollection of Peter mainly. So this guy, whoever, whoever told Mark this had firsthand knowledge of it. So Peter may have been one of the guys that he sent. Uh, notice what he says. He says, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a water pitcher. Follow him. Now get this. This is the most, most attended festival and feast in all of Judaism. People came from everywhere. All, from every, tri every tribe of Israel, they were there in Jerusalem. This was the feast. There were God-fearing Gentiles. There were folks from all over. Estimate, estimates say there was probably upwards of 500,000. A half a million people crowded into the streets of Jerusalem. Now can you imagine that? So here Jesus tells them, He says, Go into town, and when you get there, you're going to see a man carrying a water pitcher. Follow him. What are the odds, Jerry, of two country boys walking into the crowded streets of Jerusalem where it's shoulder to shoulder, it looks like Mardi Gras in New Orleans, and seeing exactly what Jesus said they're going to see? What are the odds? I'm telling you, they're not very good unless God has ordained it. And that's exactly what happened. He was aware of every detail. Now, why did that guy stand out is the question. How many men must have been there carrying water pots? One. <laughs> he was going to stand out. You know why? Watch this. I'm not even prompted him, but I'm going to throw something on Cliff. Uh, Cliff, are you awake? All right, here we go. Even in Africa today, whose job is it to carry the water on their heads? Say it again, Cliff. It's women who carry water. So for a man to be carrying water was sticking out like a sore thumb in this culture. So they had no problem identifying who it was that Jesus was talking about because he was the oddball. Here's a guy carrying a water pitcher on his head. They, they saw him. Now, how in the world did all of that take place? And the liberal scholar says, well, Jesus went on into town and set all this up. Even if he had set that up, what are the odds in that day when nobody had a risk watch of having that guy carrying a water pitcher right down the road where these disciples are going to be walking in the midst of 500,000 people? I'm telling you, it's impossible. He was aware of every single detail. Now, 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 now watch this. This blows my mind. Do you know how he knew of every single detail that was taking place in this drama? 
Because, son, this wasn't the first time he'd seen it. Get this. Revelation tells us, remember our Paschal Lamb theme here? Revelation that uses the designation for Jesus as Lamb of God more than any other book in the Bible. Here's what Revelation tells us. That Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God, get this, slain before the foundation of the world. Are you with me? He was slain before the foundation of the world. So way back there in eternity past, before God ever said, let there be light, in perfect communion in the Holy Trinity, they could see this event unfolding. Wow! And here the Son of God is acutely aware of every detail, every moving part that's going on. That's why He can direct. Now let me just take you into another level and you're thinking about God, can I? Hey, He was the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. He'd already seen all of this. Do you know how it is that God knows the future? Not just because He's omniscient, but because He's eternal. And because He is eternal, get this, God already occupies every ounce of time. Every ounce of it. From the very inception to the culmination. God is so big that He spills over into all of time. Do you know that Tomorrow hasn't got here yet, but God's already in it. Next year hasn't got here yet, but God's already there. God's so big, listen, this world, when it was spoken into existence maybe 6,000 years ago, God is there today. Hey, I want to tell you, this will blow your mind about how big our God is. Now look here, I I, I don't know how big uh, Allah is. I don't know how big Krishna is. But I've got a sneaking suspicion They ain't nothing compared to Jesus. He is so big until He spills out of eternity and occupies all of time. And He sees it all at one time from one vantage point. Let me see if I can explain it like this. Remember in the old days when they had those reel-to-reel movies? And there would be a loop of film over here on this reel. And there would be a loop of film over here on this reel. And that strip would run through. And and basically the film, what it is, it's an individual steel shot frame. Right? And when you pull that baby, it gives the appearance of it's moving. Hence, a motion picture. Now let me tell you how the Lord is. You see, because when we look at a movie, all we see is this frame. But let me tell you how big our God is. Our God's so big, He sees every frame simultaneously. Because He's already there. He's in eternity. God sees every frame of human history from one vantage point. He sees your yesterday. Hence, He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He sees your tomorrow. He knows what's going on. Not simply because He's omniscient, because you can trust Him with your tomorrow, because He's already there. He's occupying tomorrow. So get this. When our great God speaks to us, and says something to us, by golly, we might ought to pull up and pay close attention because He knows. Because He's already there. And here Jesus is. He knows every detail. Why? Because I'm telling you, He is the eternal Son of God. He's already seen this drama played out because He was the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. My goodness. What a big God we serve, huh? Check it out. He was acutely aware of every detail. And because of that, His Word was confirmed. Hey, can I say to you, as He said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but His Word remains forever. And check out what the disciples said here. The the, the Bible says that these disciples went into town. Check it out. It's It's a big verse right here in verse number 16. The disciples went out and came to the city. And look here, is there any surprise? They found it just as He had told them. Huh? His Word is always confirmed. Now what do you think you reckon those old boys thought when they got down there? And and how do you reckon they... Lord, you were telling us to go into that crowded city with a half million bustling people in the streets... 
And we're going to walk in those streets elbow to elbow, shoulder to shoulder, folks stepping on my toes and on the back of my flip-flops and my robe dragging in the dirt from so many people stepping on it. And you're telling me I'm going to walk in there and I'm going to see a guy in one out of 500,000 people carrying a water pot. I bet Peter thought, I'm going to act spiritual, but I ain't buying this. <laughs> you know? I mean, you ever been there? I, 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 I just don't know if I can buy all this, but I'm going to act spiritual and I'm going I'm to do it anyway. What do you reckon they thought when they got into town? And by golly, they just trying to keep their toes from being stepped on and looked up and there's a guy with a water pot on his head. You reckon there was a little bit of a revival took place right then? You see, here's the thing. Observation of what God said only happens after obedience to what He has said. Hey, we want to get to the hallelujah part, but we don't want to get through the tough part of obedience. See, here's how you get to the hallelujah part. Here's how you get to the revival part. By doing the tough part up front. He sent them out. And they were probably thinking, yeah, 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 yeah. Confirmation always comes after obedience. And man, how often do we have that wrong? God says, do this, and we think, all right, God, you do this and I'll do that. It don't work that way. No. You do what He said, and then you'll see what He said take place. His Word was confirmed. And because His Word was confirmed, check out the next thing. Their work was completed. Look at verse number 16 again. The disciples went out and came to the city. They found it just as He had told them. There's the confirmation part. Now here's the completion part. And they prepared the Passover. The only way they could do their part was if He did His part first. Are you following me? You see, there's nothing that you can do if God doesn't first do something on your behalf. There's no way. So because His Word was confirmed, because they found it just like He said, they were able to complete their work. Man, man, man. What is it that we're going to complete in 2022? Because He said to do it. I mean, has he, has he commanded us to be about anything in 2022? You better believe it. And man, the only question is, are, are we going to have the faith to take Him at His Word and do it? See His Word confirmed and see our work complete. Man, I'm so grateful for the opportunities. And I'm, I talked to Tony Dees this past week and I said, Man, God's got this thing on fast track. I can't believe. Because we believe that God wants us to plant churches in this panhandle portion of Florida. We don't know. Listen, we're like a blind hog finding an acorn here. But we know that God said to go into all the world and preach the gospel. We believe we've got something worth replicating. And we said we're going to do it. And look at everything that's already happened. My goodness. We knew we couldn't pull the trigger till we had somebody to... To, 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 to hold down the pulpit and out of the blue, Tony and Jenna Dees are dropped in our lap. How does that happen? i tell you how it happens. When you put your hand to the plow of obedience and doing what God says to do, God will supply everything and everybody necessary to get it done. We're not going to complete a thing if God hadn't first ordered it. And boy, I'm, I'm a firm believer that He's ordered it. Hey, I was on the phone the other day with a businessman in Jacksonville, Florida. And we were just talking about some things. I served as his pastor while I was over there. It's amazing what God has done with his business. And he says, uh, so I was laying in bed the other night, or the other morning, and I was talking to my wife, and I said, babe, God's blessed us. He said, you know, we've got, we've got uh, a pretty significant influence in several areas of, of, of kingdom building here in missions and here in this place and here in that place, but I think God's calling us in 2022 to do something beyond what we're doing. And he said, wait. I talked to Richie Allen about a month ago and he talked about a church they were going to plant in Bonifay, Florida. An old boy says, hey, do y'all have any financial need with a church plant? I said, son, church planters are always broke. You better believe we have a need. Unsolicited. Grace Church, you put your hand to the plow 
of what God has asked us to do by faith. And I'm telling you, we won't have to beg for anything. God will move heaven and earth to make sure we got it. And our work will be completed because His Word is going to be confirmed. That's all there is to it. That's why I say, look here, pull you up a front row seat, strap on your seat belt and hold on and watch God blow us away this year. Look at these flags back here. Look at the field in North Florida. God hadn't prepared this table for an hour like this for us to just sit here and twiddle our thumbs. It's amazing what God's already starting to do if we'll have the faith to step through the hoops with Him. I got to run, I got to run, I got to run. Check this out. Two people in the same place but on different paths. One was in complete control of his situation. One was in the complete custody of sin. Pastor Tony said a couple of weeks ago, he said, you're a slave to something or to someone. You're either a slave of Jesus, which is one of the number one designations of disciples in the New Testament, doulos, we're a bondservant, we're a slave. Or you're either a slave to sin, one of the two. Well, check out old Judas, and he was in the complete custody of sin. Isn't it amazing how folk think they're free, but they're not? All they can do is whatever sin bids them to do. Why is it that people make so many boneheaded choices? i tell you why. Because they're serving sin. And sin will lead you down the wrong path every time. It's going to. Somebody's got to deliver us. Dear God, we need a Paschal Lamb slain before the foundation of the world to perform an exodus on Calvary's cross to break the chains of sin so that we can be free to do what God's called us to do. Now check this out. I want you to see this about old Judas because this is, this is just a little bit alarming to me because I've got to be honest with you. Most of the time, old Richie finds himself more in more alignment with Judas than he wishes. You know what I mean? Check it out. He was in the complete custody of sin. It's scary to me how it commenced. Judas, how did you get to where you are today? How did you wind up there, Judas? Did you set out to be the guy in all of history whom Jesus said should have never been born? No, that's not how it started out. Look how it started. It started, he was in the company of believers. Check this out, verse number 20. The Bible says, It is one, Jesus speaking said to them, It is one of the twelve. Friends, he was in the company of believers and still ended up busting hell wide open. Hey, just because you go to church doesn't mean you're a believer. You're no more a believer just because you're in the company of church than you are a John Deere tractor because you sleep in a barn. You know what I'm saying? That's not what makes you a believer. And here old Judas was in the company of believers. Dear Lord, he was in the company of the apostles of Jesus Christ. The men who were going to turn the world upside down. He rubbed shoulders with them. He ate with them. He was in company with them. And he still ended up missing it. My goodness, that's scary, isn't it? Man, I tell you, I'm beginning to understand why Billy Graham said in his final days looking at the local church that maybe 80% of the membership of local churches have never been born again. Got religious people sitting on pews today will fight you over a hymn book or the color of the carpet or anything else and they've never been born again even though they've been sitting on that same pew there is a perfect impression of their hiney in the third pew, right hand side, in that church they've been going to for the past 60 years. Huh? And if you don't think that ain't that, the impression of their hiney, you sit in it and see. <laughs> They'll let you know that that is the impression of their hiney. Your hiney don't fit it, get out. <laughs> he was in the company of believers. I have an evangelist friend in Winter Garden. He says the only thing worse than going to hell is going to hell thinking you were going to heaven because you've been in church all your life. Number two, 
scary how it commenced. He was in the company of believers. But number two, he was callous toward God's Word. He was calloused. You know, you know what it means when I say, you, you got, got any calluses on your hands? Or y'all got bankers' hands? <laughs> Jerry, let me see your hands. <laughs> you know what I mean. You get a blister on your hand, Blake, and you'll get a callus built up there. Next thing you know, you can work without gloves because you ain't got no feeling right there. It's tough as rawhide. Huh? And this old boy had become callous toward God's Word. Notice how calloused he was. Let me show you this in verses 18 through 20. Here they are. Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. And they all began to ask, surely it's not I, is it? Now this was a public conversation. Do you see this? Because each one of them asked him out loud. You get the feeling that Jesus didn't answer any of them. I mean, they were a little bit worried. They weren't too, they weren't too secure in, in, in their walk of faith, were they? Because they knew what was in them just like we know what's in us. Huh? And I bet you as each one of them said, Is it I? I bet Jesus just stared at him. The next one. Is it I? He just stared at him. You ever had anybody stare through you? Because the Bible doesn't report that Jesus answered any. He didn't absolve any of them from the possibility. But check this out. As it goes on, notice how callous Judas was. Because this is a public conversation. And look at what it is Jesus says in verse number 20. He said to them, It is one of the twelve, he's narrowing it down, one who dips with me in the bowl. Now get this. If old Richie's sitting in that group, what's the last thing I'm going to do? Son, all of a sudden I ain't hungry no more. I think I just ate. <laughs> Huh? Ain't that right? Yes. Judah sitting right there heard Jesus say it's the one who's going to dip with me in the bowl. He pulls him off a piece of French bread, goes to dip it, and Judas jumps in there and gets the gravy before he does. You dang ding dong <laughs> is all I can say. But it just goes to show you how callous some people are to God's Word. He sat right there and he heard Jesus say it and he was unmoved by it. Didn't even respect what he said enough to even alter his behavior for a moment. You know, at least hypocrites do respect the word and they'll fake it for a little while. Am I right? But Judas was so callous, he didn't even care to alter one iota of his behavior. Grabs him a piece of bread and he dips right there with Jesus. Right after Jesus says, it's the one who's going to dip with me. Now friend, listen, it's very easy to be become callous like Judas. You know how you do it? Just say no to God's Word. Just kind of control what the Spirit is prompting you to do. You control it today and I promise you tomorrow it's a little bit easier. You ever notice the first time you, you do that, you're just convicted and you know you did wrong, you should, but the next time it's a little bit easier. Just watch this. Just lay out a church for one Sunday. The next Sunday, you know what? It's a little bit easier to lay out. Hey, this ain't so bad after all. The next Sunday, it's a little bit easier. Until before long, it doesn't even cross your mind that you ought to be worshiping with the people of God today because you're getting callous and you can't feel anymore. And friend, I'll tell you, it worries me. It worries me. I say to Dr. John Wilson, I had rather people come to Grace Church get offended and leave on day one than I had for people to come and just sit in here for months and never respond to the appeal of God's Word. Because the person who is least likely to ever be born again is the one who's been in the company of believers and who has become callous to God's Word. Not very likely they'll ever, ever, ever be born again. Number next, i got to hurry. He was callous to God's Word. He was physically close to Jesus. How close did he have to be to Jesus to dip in the bowl with him at the same time? So listen, he was in hand's distance of the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Now you understand why there's a mystery around here? How in the world is it that somebody can be in the presence of Jesus and not <laughs> respond but it happens more often than 
we give credit. Check it out. i got to hurry. i got to pick up the pace as I'm running through these. Not only was he physically close to Jesus, but he was not convinced of truth. I decided to widen my search here and look and see what some other gospel writers said about Judas. And notice what it is that John says about him in John's Gospel chapter 6 and verse number 64. But there are some of you who do not believe. Do you see that? Now who are you talking about, Jesus? Well, John tells us, For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray Him. See, He knew from the beginning. From the beginning of what? Since before the foundation of the world. He knew this. And here Jesus is all along, still holding out the appeal to Judas. Still trying to convince him of truth. And old Judas with a callous heart in the company of believers close to Jesus refused all the way to the gates of hell. Number next, not only was he not convinced of truth, but the Bible also tells us that he was covetous. Check this out, John chapter 12. Notice what John tells us about Judas in chapter 12 of his gospel in verse 6. Remember, this is the story we looked at last week with the 300 denarii. And here old Judas says, Why wasn't this soul given to the poor? John tells us, Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. So Judas was covetous. He wanted stuff that other people had. And you know, here's one of the things that I hope we experience this Christmas. You know, one of the reasons why we gave out our gift cards and wanted to go out and bless folk in our community, how many of you did that? Yee! Do you know how it is that you slay the monster of covetousness? Say it again. Giving, giving, giving. That big old green monster of greed, you know what will kill him graveyard dead? Just give. Just give. And before long you find out that that old covetous, greedy monster's dead. And here Judas was, covetous. And look at the path that that old boy's on. Number next, i got to run on. Not only was he covetous, but here's this coming back up again from last week. He had not been cleansed. Look in verse uh, uh, John's Gospel chapter 13. I decided to just kind of do a biographical sketch here of Judas in the Gospels. And here's what John tells us in chapter 13, verse number 11. John tells us, uh, or look at verse number 10. Jesus said, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet. This is when Jesus is washing disciples' feet. But is completely clean. You are clean. Oh, but wait a minute. Not all of you. Not all of you. He realized, wait, there's one in this room that's not clean. There's one in this room who by faith has not applied the blood of the Lamb to his account. So he's still in his sin. Look what Jesus says in verse number 11. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, not all of you are clean. See, there's something about being clean, isn't there? Isn't there? My gosh. When God takes the red blood of His Son applies it to the dark sin of your life and causes you to be white as snow. There's something to being cleansed. Man, you can sleep finally, huh? You got peace with God. There's something to it. And old Judas had never been cleansed. Hey, he had walked by the fountain and had never been dipped. Check it out. Not only had he not been cleansed, but the Bible also tells us he hadn't been converted. Check out what John tells us in chapter 6 one more time. John chapter 6, as we look at this biography of, 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 of Judas. John chapter 6 and verse number 70. Here's what John tells us. Man, that's a long chapter, isn't it? Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is... Look at that. One of you is a devil. Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon and Sacharit, for he was one of the twelve who was going to betray him. Wow. <laughs> he was a devil. He'd never been born again. So you're either a child of God or you're a child of the devil. And I can tell you how you come. I, you know, it bothers me when folks say, Oh, I've been a believer all my life. No, you ain't. You might have believed something all your life, but you haven't been... You hadn't had, had belief unto salvation all of your life because you come, 
part of the package is you come as a child of the devil. In the custody of sin. Given over to it until God intervenes. Well, number next, it's sad how it commenced. Man, I tell you, does that hit close to home to you? That's why I said it's not sad. It's scary how it commenced. But look, it's sad how it concluded. How does the story of Judas conclude? Turn with me to Acts chapter 1 and verse number 18. I want you to see how it concludes. Acts chapter 1 verse number 18. Notice what it is that that Peter says here. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness. Now look, that is an obvious reference to the 30 pieces of silver that members of the Sanhedrin paid him to betray Jesus. Are you with me? Look what he did with that blood money. He took that blood money and he went and he bought himself a farm. Judas probably thought, you know, I've always wanted to own me a little piece of land right out here on the, uh, on the outskirts of town. Man, I, I, there's turkey on that place. <laughs> Might be a buck or two on it. Who, who knows? But I've always wanted a little piece of property over there. And he had his sight set on that. No telling for how long because he was a covetous man. Now all of a sudden he's got something out of Jesus. He's got 30 pieces of silver and he goes out there and he buys that piece of land. And what happened? Well, out there on that piece of land, he took his life. Now, I don't necessarily mean he committed suicide out there because that's not where, Pete, where Judas committed suicide. you know where he committed suicide? Way back in those early Jesus days with Jesus when he was in the company of believers. But he never placed his faith in Christ. Oh, he committed suicide way back then when he was callous towards God's Word. You see, that's where he committed suicide. But notice what takes place to him out on that field. Notice what the Scripture says. Falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all of his intestines gushed out. Now you think it's gruesome in the English text. You ought to read it in the original Greek text. It does get gruesome. But here is the teaching. Isn't it ironic? that what he wanted all of his life, the goal to own this piece of property. I want this piece of property so bad until I'm willing to sell Jesus Christ. And I'll take that money and I'll buy it. And now here Judas is out there on his property and something happens that we're not privy of, but the accident was so great and the fall was so hard until he was eviscerated in the middle. Now does that sound like life to you? Watch this. You are never going to find meaning in life when you get off the path that God has for you. And that's exactly what Judas decided to do. No, I'm not walking this path with you boys. There's things I want out of life. So I'm rejecting this path over here that God has for me and I'm taking my path. And isn't it ironic that the thing that he thought was going to give him life was the very thing that ultimately took his life. It's amazing. Friend, it's the same way today. Hey, can I just ask you a question? You ever robbed God of His tithe in order to buy something that you wanted? And that thing ended up being a thorn in your side? Huh? Meaning is never found contrary to God. I'm telling you, you'd rather walk the path that leads to the cross and be where God wants you, embracing His destiny, than you had to take your own route and end up with a nice piece of property somewhere. Because meaning is never found apart from the pathway that God has for us. Number next, look, I've got to hurry. And I'm shutting her down. He took his earthly life. You see, that's not the path that God has for you. You ever, said, you, ever, you ever said something like this? Man, this job's killing me. Huh? <laughs> well, is that God's path for you or not? Because you get off God's path, start headed to what you want, and that's exactly what it'll do. It'll kill you. Little by little. Number next, not only did he lose his earthly life, excuse me, but he also forfeited eternal life. Here's what's sad. Man, this guy had it all laid out in front of him. And he made the conscious decision to walk away. Check out verse number 21. See if it's in verse number 21. Is that where it's at? 
No, that's not where it's at. Uh, let me see if I can find it. Where is it where it says Peter went to his own place? Come on, one of you scholars. I put the wrong verse down here on my paper. One of you, one of you Bible scholars, pull that out for me. It's right here. It's right here. Ah, here it is, verse 25. Check it out. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show us which one of these two you have chosen. They were replacing Judas as in, the, in the rank of the twelve apostles to occupy the ministry and apostleship from which Judas, look at here, turned aside to go to his own place. You know what Peter just said? Peter just said, Judas went to the place of his own choosing. He turned aside from the path God had for him. He chose his own path. And that path ultimately led him to his own place. You know what his own place is a reference to? Say it, say it, say it, say it. Hell. That's exactly right. And it's almost as if Peter here is using, uh, using some type of coded language to say what we have heard said about so many folk today that there's a special place in hell reserved for them. And here old Judas went to his own place. Look, here's the story of two men, two people in the same place but on different paths. Maybe we ought to ask ourselves, Lord, I'm in the right place, but I'm on the right path. Lord, I'm in the right church, but I'm on the right pew. God, what is it that I need to do in order to embrace your destiny for me, to walk the path you have for me in 2022 so that I can see your word confirmed and so we can see your work completed in Bonifay, Florida and around this globe for the glory of Christ. Would you stand with me please? Father in heaven, thank you for your word.